want to share a word with you this morning that I trust will be of great encouragement to you on this specific day. And what I'd like us to do, if you, if you can, is go with me to the wonderful book of Zechariah. Now, for some of you, you uh, may not be so familiar with the book of Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, um, but the book of Zechariah is right there. If you, if you find Zephaniah, Nahum, all of those guys, then you're in the vicinity. And uh, we're going to read a, a portion of Scripture in Zechariah chapter 3, which is a, a, a vision that Zechariah had. And, I mean, this is what makes the Bible unlike any other book that you will find. That hundreds of years before Christ, a man like Zechariah could tell us and give us the understanding of what is going to happen when Jesus comes. And he knew things that it would be impossible for a person to know unless God revealed it to you. And this is what makes Jesus such a unique person that so many of the actions of his life were described hundreds of years before he actually did it, that these things were described were going to happen. And are we going to look at one of the portions of Scripture like that? And so I'd like you to go with me to Zechariah 3, verse 1 to 7. We're going to read those seven verses together. So this is the vision that Zechariah had. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me, and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house, and you have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. So the picture that he has in this vision is of a courtroom, a typical courtroom scene. I don't know how many of you have had the privilege, pleasure, displeasure of being in a courtroom, but I think we've all seen television, we all have some idea of what a courtroom looks like. So here we have a courtroom scene. The accused is represented by Joshua, the high priest. Now, whenever the scripture speaks of a high priest, we must always remember that the main task of the high priest was to represent the people before God. So Joshua, the high priest, stands here, and while he's the accused, he actually represents all of us. So in a sense, we can say this is every one of us standing in a court case accused of something, being evaluated, being judged in a courtroom situation. Joshua, the high priest, is being measured. There's an accusation made against him, and there has a decision has to be made of, is he guilty? There's a decision that has to be made. Does he qualify? Is he good enough to be a priest? And on what basis is that going to be decided? So we have the accused. But we also have in this courtroom the accuser. And uh, here the accuser is named Satan. The word Satan in the Hebrew means accuser or shamer or one that would bring slander against somebody, opposer, one that stands against. So here we have Joshua standing and probably the person that is the loudest speaking the most, the most active in this courtroom is Satan, the accuser. 
shouting out against Joshua all his misdeeds, all his transgressions, all his sins, all his failures. He's completely making sure that everybody in the court knows what the charges are against Joshua, listing them. Every single time that Joshua failed as a as a child of God, as a, as a person to uphold the law of God, the accuser is saying, based on these charges, this man does not qualify to stand before God and to be a priest in the service of God because he's made all these errors and committed all these sins. We also have in this courtroom the one that speaks on Joshua's behalf, his advocate, his representative. And if you re- remember the scripture there, it says, and the angel of the Lord... Now, in the Old Testament, often we find that this is a uh, uh, pre-incarnate representation of Jesus Christ, is the angel of the Lord. So can you see these three main characters standing in this courtroom? Joshua the accused, Satan the accuser, and Christ the advocate. Amazing revelation that he has. So let's focus a little bit on the accuser. For a period of time. Every one of us knows the voice of the accuser. Every one of us experiences that voice that says to us, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You're a fake. You're a poser. You make people believe that you're such a good person, but you're actually terrible. If they only really knew you, if they only really knew what you were doing in the, you know, when people weren't watching, if that you're, you're, just a, you're just a poser. We all have that voice that consistently tries to break you down, that says, you don't deserve it. You're not good enough. You don't qualify. Now, you may be here today and you may say to me, I, I, don't, I don't believe in this Satan nonsense. I, I don't even believe in, 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 in this thing that evil is, is caused by one being. And, and he fully represents everything that is evil. I, I don't believe in that. I, 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 I don't think that that is true. And that's okay if you, if you don't agree with us as Christians that view that evil comes from Satan. If, if you don't agree with that, that's fine. But I, I want to pose to you today that you still experience the voice of the accuser. You still have a voice in your head. Every day you feel that accusation that comes against you. Every day you deal with that reality of some voice that says to you, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You, you don't qualify. That voice is a universal reality. We, we all experience it. Sometimes it's even in our dreams that we will hear that voice. How many of you have a recurring dream of arriving at school or at varsity or at work and you're half-clothed? Now, some of you not putting up your hand, you're just too shy. It's phenomenal. It's, it's all over the world. So many people have that dream. It speaks of that, of that fear that's in us. That somebody's going to find us out and someday we're going to be exposed and, and we're going to be revealed to be as, un- you know, as, as incomplete as what we really feel on the inside we are. And it's part of that voice that always speaks to us and says, you're a fake. You're trying so hard, but you're a disappointment. And I know we, in our society today we can get so busy and when we're really busy and, you know, get caught up in the stuff of life and with entertainment that's all over the place and everything, we can, we can quieten that voice and we can, we can push that voice to the background. But every so often we have quiet moments and that voice comes 
And then we realize how that voice has been so ever-present with us. You're in the background. Having been with a number of people that is on their last minutes, sitting with people that are dying. Just last year, I had about three people that I had that opportunity with. It is quite clarifying to be with people in those moments. Because it's then when everything else is quiet, all the other voices are no longer speaking. And all they have is what's going on inside of them. And you see revealed the voices that have been speaking to them. And, and so often for people who don't have something that has supplanted that voice of the accuser, it's in that moment that the accuser's voice speaks. And you have to help them deal with that voice. We all deal with the voice of the accuser. Whether you believe in Satan or not, we all deal with that voice. You see, and the, the problem with the voice of the accuser is there's a lot of truth in what he says. When the accuser stands against me and starts listing my sins and my failures and my mistakes, it would be wonderful if I could say, no, no, no. But in so much of what he says, I, I'm ashamed and my head drops as I recognize there's truth here. Not everything he says is true because he's a liar and he sometimes inflates and, and sometimes he, dimini, you know, he, he twists and he turns it. But if I look at what he's saying, I, I'm familiar with the charges brought against me. And in good conscience, I cannot say this is not true of me. Many of the things he lists, I can, I can remember the day, I can remember the time. A lot of it I wasn't even aware of. The, you know, it didn't really compute for me that these thoughts and these attitudes, and, and even when I missed doing the right thing, sins of omission, and that there's so many charges against me. You see, because there's a real standard, there's a real right and wrong. The, the charges he brings is because there's a law. There's a law that is, have to be upheld. Any, any advocate, any uh, prosecutor that stands in a court of law, their job is to execute that which the law expects of them. And the accuser is no different. He's taking the law. And he comes and he says, based on this law, you have transgressed. Now again, you may be here this morning and you may say to me, but I don't believe in the law of God. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe that these things are, are, have any bearing on my life. But I want to tell you, you still have a law in your life. You still have something that you hold up to say, this is good and this is evil. There's no person on this planet that cannot do that. You still respond every day and make choices according to your value system and your moral system that says this is right and this is wrong. So even if it's not according to biblical law, you are guilty of breaking your own law. Because as much as every person lives by some law, every person transgresses that law. Because none of us are good enough. None of us can do it. So the accuser is there, ever reminding us. This is the law, and you've broken it. Now for us as Christians, we experience that because he holds up our, our Father's law, our God's law against us. And he holds it up and he says, look, you've broken this law. You, you try and act like you don't, you, you're better than this, but I know you think these thoughts. And he's, and he's bringing these accusations at, at us all the time, wearing us down with the accusations. 
And, and the thing that he does is he takes this which God made for good and he turns it around to harm us. The law of God is good. It's beautiful because without God's law, you cannot have life and good life. God's law was given and its intent was for us so that we can know how to live and live life the best way that it can be lived. But Satan takes this law because he's the manipulator, the liar, the deceiver, and he twists that law and he uses it against us to harm us. Paul writes about this in Romans 7. As he's speaking about from his own experience how he struggles with this reality. He writes in Romans 7 verse 11, Sin took advantage of those commandments and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still the law itself, it's holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can it be that the law which is good caused my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commandments for its own evil purposes. And Paul writes, he says, the more I know the law of God, the more guilty I become of sin. Because the enemy uses it against me. That which was intended for good, he turns around to accuse me. Every one of us know the voice of the accuser. So how do you deal with this voice? If we all have this horrible voice, if we all have this reality in our lives, how do we deal with it? Now in, in our society and in the world, not just today, but I think over time, there's probably two main ways that people try and deal with this voice. The first thing people do to try and quiet this voice, to silence the voice of the shamer, to, to, to diminish the voice of the accuser, is they say, if I can do more good than bad, then I've got something to stand on. If, if, I, can, if I can be a better person than, and, and do more good things than what I do bad things, then, then perhaps I'll, I'll, I'll quieten the voice of the shamer and have more things to hold up and say, yeah, yeah, but look at this, this is what I do good. And we say things like, you know, we want to make the world a better place. If you've ever won a beauty pageant, then you say, all I want is peace for all mankind. And, you know, animals to love, live in peace and lions and lambs to lie together. And, you know, all these. We, we, we say, if I can just leave the world a better place than what I found it. If I can just be a, a good person. If I can just have a positive balance to my life. I know I'm going to do some bad, but perhaps if I really work hard at it, if I really try and be a good person, then I'll diminish the accusations against me and increase the good. And Paul understood this. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He said of himself, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was one of those people that kept the law to the yacht and the tittle, that tried to do everything perfect as he understood it. He tried to do everything right according to how he understood the law to be, which was for him God's law. He said, I worked so hard to keep my, my, ba my balance positive so that the accu accuser, when he speaks against me, would have nothing to accuse me of, that I would be able to stand in God's presence and say, I qualify, Lord, because I've kept your law. But Paul says, the more I try and keep the law, the more I fail. You see, because that's the reality. When you try and be a good person, we fail. And even when we good, do good, it does not erase the bad we've done. You can do so much good in your life and, and great, awesome. You know, we appreciate people that try and do good rather than bad. 
But I, I think we all realize that no amount of good you do will ever erase the bad we've done. I think of Tiger Woods. This is an illustration for Laurie. Tiger Woods, you know, this amazing golfer, youngest major champion ever. I mean, he had the world at his feet. He was this phenomenon as a golf player and then developed personal problems over a period of time. And at some point, all his ugly deeds and habits came to the forefront. And because of how well-known he was, it became public news. Everybody knew. And his family was broken and his wife was hurt and his children and many people. And it was a disaster. And for for many years, he was around, but he was a shadow of the man he used to be. He started picking up injuries, and at a stage, he could hardly walk because he, of, of his back problems. And, and he even fell out of the top 1,000 golfers in the world, lost his, many of his sponsors. He, he would compete in, in tournaments as a draw card, and perhaps this is the time, but, but more and more people started writing him off. And then last weekend, he wins a major. An amazing thing. But this is the reality. I mean, much respect to him and, and, uh, you know, awesome. But this is the reality. If he wins every tournament from now on till the end of his golf playing days, how many of you know he'll never undo the damage he did to his wife? He never can undo that. God can redeem and forgive, but he as a person can never take that back. He can never make it disappear. It'll always be there. If he gives every cent that he's ever wins from here on forward to charity, it'll not undo his failures. And so it is with each one of us. We cannot erase our mistakes by just trying to do better. And think in that way the accuser's voice is going to disappear. That I can say to the accuser, yes, I used to do that, but look at what I've done now. You know, in actual fact, what happens is the accuser's voice becomes sharper. Because every time you think, I've done really good now, isn't the accuser right there to say, yeah, yeah, you think you're fooling everybody. I know you. I know who you really are. I know the skeletons in your closet. You're not all that you made up to be. And, and it's said of many people, famous rich people, you know, that give so much to charity, how hollow they still feel. They're trying to buy something. They're trying to get something to quieten the voice of the accuser so that they can feel like a, a real person, not who the accuser says. So that's the one way people try and deal with the accuser's voice. Another way that people try and deal with the accuser's voice is to say, well, if we take away all law, if we remove any sense of right and wrong, then the accuser has nothing to stand on. If there's no law that he can accuse me of breaking, then he cannot hold me guilty, then I will not feel shame, I will, I will not be held accountable. So in that way, if we can take away all sense of right and wrong, then none of us can be held guilty, therefore the accuser can no longer accuse us, belittle us, beride us, you know, stand against us, mock us. He cannot do that anymore because there's no law. I can't be guilty. And I mean, that sounds wonderful, that sounds reasonable. I mean, there was not too long ago in this country, you couldn't grow little green plants in your garden. You know the little green plants I speak of. If you were growing those little green plants with the five leaf, you know those little green plants. If you grew them in your garden and the police came, they could arrest you. But then the law changed. Now you can grow those. If, uh, you know, I, perhaps I misunderstand the law. 
And I'm not encouraging this. I'm just saying now you can grow these little green plants and the police can't do anything to you because the law changed. You can't be held guilty anymore. So if we change the law, then there's none of us that are guilty. And many people actually hold this up and say that the way we're going to become a better world, where we're going to be less judgmental, where we're going to be less problematic and cause discomfort for people, is just to remove the law. And just, you know, be tolerant. And just accept everybody. And just, you know, what we want to do, if that's right for you, then that's right. So we don't, then we will not hear the accuser's voice anymore. Because if he then comes and accuses me, then I say, ah, didn't you get the memo? That law's been scrapped. You can't hold me guilty for that anymore. Yay, I'm free. But unfortunately, he knows the law. Our accuser knows the law. And you can do all the funny games you want to and the semantic and the shenanigans and try and move the law. He knows the everlasting law. And you can think the law doesn't count. He knows the law counts. He just changes his perspective, his tactics. None of us can live in a world where everything goes. I know it's very tempting when you're on the wrong side of the law to say, no, that law is not valid anymore. Hey, isn't it nice if you can be pulled over for a speeding violation? And the, you know, the officer comes and says, excuse me, sir. And he uh, wants to write you the ticket. And then if, it's very tempting at that point to say, this is a ridiculous law. This law shouldn't exist. You know, this, if we just scrap this law because you're on the wrong side of the law. But how many of you know, if you're on the other side of the coin and you need the law to protect you, then we all suddenly become very righteous and demand that the law must be applied to the letter. Because we all need law. In, a, in society, we need law. In our lives, we need moral law. How do we live? What does it mean to be good? And there is no single person on this planet that does not have some definition of good and bad. You cannot live without law. So to think we're going to silence the accuser by removing the law, we're fooling ourselves. I don't know if you know this story. It's in the news lately of one of the professional rugby players, Australian rugby player, that posted on social media what he considered and understood to be law about how people should live their lives and what is good practice. And, and he posted it on social media and he said, you know, if you do these things according to what he understands the Bible to teach, then you are running foul of God's law and you will face the punishment for the law that you have broken. And uh, subsequent to that, he was taken, his job was taken away from him contract was ended, he's now challenging it, but he was basically told that, you know, he's a bad person, he's a terrible person, they cannot associate themselves with him anymore, you know, the sponsors are going to withdraw because how can they be associated with a person that, that is so terrible and says such horrible things about other people, and, and they, they treated him in that way. Another rugby player from another country liked his post, and that guy found himself having to fight for his job because he did like the post of a Christian person that said, this is what I believe to be biblically true. Now I want to read you a comment that a newspaper man, an old rugby player, made about this in a, in, a, in a British newspaper. He said the following, that he, as the writer, always loathed the way 
Those islanders formed a circle post-match and give their praises to what I regard as a fabrication. He went on, but I am a child of the Enlightenment, fortunate enough to have the benefit of a reasonable education. Now, what I want to pose before you here today is that in that situation, the Christian that stood up for what they believed to be right was positioned as they part of the problem because they speaking the accuser's voice. So if we just deal with these Christians with their ridiculous ancient laws that aren't inapplicable anymore, that comes from a book that is ancient and outdated and that should move with the times, if we just keep them quiet and just tell them to stay in their place and not speak up anymore, then the world will become a much better place and we will not have the voice of the accuser in us anymore and the, and the world will be just so much kinder. That's the thought. The Christians have become the problem. And if you read now, I read other articles where it's becoming clear that Christians are fair game now. If you stand up and declare anything as a Christian, this is your belief, you're fair game. Other religions still will be treated with respect, but Christians are uniquely positioned in this way in our culture. But now, I laugh at this thought, because in this, all that has happened is the accuser's voice has just moved. Because can I read you this statement again and then listen for the accuser's voice in this statement? That he always loathed the way those islanders when you say something like that, what are you saying? You're saying people from Samoa, people from Fiji, people from the Cook Islands, those people, I'm better than them. Those people, with their imaginary God, had the privilege when we were in the U.S. to meet a pastor of the largest church in Fiji, where they have hundreds of thousands of people that worship that island, and they love God. Not saying it's perfect or whatever, but it's a people that have Christianity and it happened in the last 50 years. Those people are, are stupid people. Those islanders. I've always hated the way they form a circle after a rugby match and they lift up their hands and they thank their deity for helping them play well that day. I've always loathed that. Does that sound loving? Does that sound embracing? Does that sound welcoming and inclusive, or does that sound like an accuser's voice, just coming from a different angle? He carries on, he says, but I, I, I am a child of the Enlightenment. I am better educated than them. And because I'm better educated, I understand things better, and therefore I know that the things that they believe to be true are not true, and I feel pity for them. Shame, they didn't have the privilege. We must understand, they didn't have the privilege of having the education I had. So we, you know, we, it's our job to correct them because they don't know any better. And I was fortunate enough to have the benefit of a reasonable education. They were trained in little schools there on the islands. You know, trained in fiction and fairy tales. Do you hear the accuser's voice? It's amazing in our world now that the people that shout tolerance the most have become the most intolerant people. If you don't believe that, test it. That's the world we're living. We've not dealt with the accuser's voice. We've just moved the accuser's voice. Just different people are feeling the accuser's voice a little bit sharper than others have, and we just keep moving it around. 
So how do we deal with the accuser's voice? If we can't deal with the accuser's voice by removing his power through law, or we can't remove his voice by trying to be better people and doing better, how do we then deal with his voice? And I think Paul captures us the feeling that we feel so well in the end of Romans 7. He says these words, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who's going to help me deal with this terrible situation? That Then he says these words, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we come to the third person in our courtroom, the advocate. The accuser has had his say. The accuser has listed the sins and the misgivings and the, uh, and the misdeeds of Joshua. And now the advocate steps up. And our advocate's a little different than what you would normally find in a court case. In a normal court case, an advocate would say, listen, I can prove this person didn't do what he was, was said he, was, he did, or I can prove that there were good reasons why he did or she did it. Our advocate doesn't do that. Our advocate stands up and says, there's truth to these charges. This person has done this. But then the scripture says some important things and interesting things. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stitch, a stick, stitch, stick, snitch, snatched? Ha! That's second time I'm preaching today. Forgive me. So is this not a man? Is this man? Ha! Somebody else want to take over? Neil, do you want to just kick? <laughs> is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What does that mean? You know when you take a stick that's in a fire and you take it out of the fire, it will stop burning eventually. And at some point the fire will die. The stick will look like it's burnt, but it will stop burning. This is what Jesus says. He says, don't you see that these, this person, this Joshua, these people have been removed. They're no longer slaves to sin. You can see the charring of sin on their lives, but they have been separated. They will no longer be burning in sin. Sin has been dealt with. Then he carries on and he says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were there standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So, so Jesus says, Take off the, the, the sin, the, the, the stench, the horrible action. Remove it from him and clothe him with new clothing, that he will look like a new person. So what he's actually saying is this person is not what they were born, it's not what they were used, that, that they used to be. They're a different person now. They're not the same as they always were. They have been changed. But then the accuser stands up and says, oh, no, hang on, hang on. That may be true that you have now rescued them from the fire and that they, they're no longer what they used to be, but that doesn't mean they're not guilty of the things they used to do. And I guarantee you if you keep an eye on them long enough, they're going to do it again because they're not perfect. He carries on with his accusations. Just because you dress him nicely doesn't mean he's not, a, he's not guilty of his criminal deeds of the past. And it's then when our advocate rises with his final piece of evidence. And he takes that bill, that charge sheet of the list of all our sins. And, and, you know, I wanted to find a scroll that I could bring and roll out for dramatic effect at this point in time that had all these things, but all I scroll I could find was a toilet roll, so I didn't think that was, you know, <laughs> going to do the thing, you know, although symbolically, I suppose. But, you know, so, so he rolls out this scroll, 
And listed on this scroll is every thought, every action, every sin I've ever committed. Everyone listed on this charge sheet. And next to it is a, is a, is a fine or a penalty for this particular sin. And if, you, if it was a time penalty, if you add it all up, here's all the list of my sins. At the bottom, when it's calculated, the balance, it says forever. Everlasting damnation and judgment. That's what the bill comes to. That's the, even if I suffer for all eternity in the most horrible place you can think of, I will not pay the price for this that I've done. And he holds that up. If you put it in rand value, it would come to an amount that I don't think you can think of such a, an unpayable amount. That's your bill. This is the charge against you. If you want to be set free, this is what you have to pay. Somebody has to pay for this. And then our advocate takes that charge sheet and he puts it down and he writes something. And then he, you know, when you've had a balance on a statement sheet, and then underneath they write something, and then there's a new balance. And he writes something, and he draws a line, and he recalculates, and then he holds it up, and it's written in red. And he holds it up, and at the bottom there, the accuser looks, and he says, balance due, 0.00. And he looks. 30 days, zero. 60 days, zero. 90 days, zero. And he, and he jumps up and down and he says, this is unfair. How is this possible? How can you do this? This is bribery. Who paid the price for this? This has to be paid. And then our advocate points to the, the writing next to the balance. And it says, paid in full. Paid in full. And then we notice that the red is not ink, it's his blood paid in full. An innocent man that if you held up his charge sheet from the word go, it says nothing. No charge can be laid against him because he was perfect in the law. He was perfect in keeping his, his father's you know, law and, 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 and living for his father. He loved his father. He did nothing wrong. There was no reason why he should have been found any guilty of anything. That man went to a cross and said on that cross, I will do what you were supposed to do. And in your place, I will take the punishment to pay your outstanding debt. And I will pay it. So today, you and I that have the blood of Jesus on us, that have accepted that payment, that have had that charge written against our lives, when the accuser holds up our charge list, we say, hm, I see that. Can I tell you there's something you forgot? You can actually add this to the list also. Because you, you, know, you don't actually know everything. Can I, can I tell you it's worse than what you thought? But because I no longer have to prove that I'm not guilty, all I have to say is paid at the bottom. I have been forgiven. The answer to silence his voice is not me trying to live a good life without God. That'll never, it's to say Jesus did it all for me. He lived the good life. And it's appropriated to me now. 
The answer to silence his voice is not to say there's no law, but it's to say Jesus upheld the law. And in him I have been declared righteous as if I kept the law. That is what Jesus did for me. So today when he holds up the charge sheet, the accuser, because today probably I'm going to do something wrong and I'm going to think a thought I shouldn't, and he'll add it to the list and he'll say, ha ha, here's a new one. What do you do with this? Then I say, you're right. It's a sin. You're right. But I want to draw your attention down to the bottom. Do you see the balance hasn't changed? It's still zero. I'm guilty of that. And, I, and by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to work very hard to, to that, never do that again. Because how can I respond any differently if I see the, the cost, if I see eternal damnation was supposed to be my payment, and then I see the horrible death Jesus paid, what it took for that bill to be settled. I don't want to add to that bill any longer. I probably will, and I know I will, but I don't want to do it because I love Jesus and I want to respond to Him and I want to love Him with all of my life. But even when I add to that bill, the balance stays the same. Because I'm washed by the blood of Christ. Worship team, you guys can join me. I'm washed by the blood of Christ. Are you washed by the blood of Christ? Are you sure today that your balance sheet says zero? Now, I want to tell you this. If, if, if you're caught in something and somebody loves you enough to tell you, listen, that's a sin. Don't fight it. Don't say, no, it's not a sin. If it's what the Bible says, just say, yes, it's a sin. Because the moment you recognize it's a sin, it does get added to your charge sheet, but then it gets included in the payment. We fight and we say, no, it's not sin. I can do this and I can say this and I can be like this. It's not a sin. If you translate the Bible from this language to this language and look at it from this angle and over this wall, then it doesn't mean that it's a sin. I'm not afraid of the Bible saying something I'm doing is a sin because it balances it out in my favor. Jesus paid the price. The accuser can accuse me and he still accuses me. I don't know about you, but I still hear his voice. The answer is not that he's going to stop speaking. The answer is that I just keep holding up. In blood, paid in full. I want you to stand with me this morning. Come on, man. This is something to get really excited about. If you don't get excited, if this doesn't speak to you, then I've not done my job well, then I have to do it again. So you better get excited about this. Perhaps today you hear and it's possible that you're not in that position where you can point to that Inscription at the bottom, paid in full. Because you've never accepted the payment. It's made for you. It's done already. Your name is already written there. It's there. But you have to say, I receive it, Lord. I believe in that payment. I'm going to stop trying to pay for it myself. I'm going to stop ignoring your, you. I'm going to stop trying to do this on my own. I want to accept your grace, your mercy. If that's you here today and you want to make this day an opportunity, I want to invite you to come to the front right now. To bring your belongings with you. Our team's going to be here, pastors, some of our leaders, elders. And they want to spend a minute with you. And I'm going to end the service. So you're not going to have time to go back to your seat. So bring your stuff. But this is a day.
This is a beautiful opportunity. You don't have to go home with the accuser's voice unanswered in your head. You don't have to go home and not know what to do with your conscience and with the guilt that wells up within you. You can have an answer for it. You can be set free today. If you just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. So we're going to worship for a bit now as, as, as a community. We're just going to end this service by declaring the love of Jesus and how much we love him and our thankfulness. And I want you to really just say thank you, Jesus. And while we do that, if you want to come forward for prayer, it'll be so wonderful to pray with you. I first want to give people opportunity that wants to pray this prayer. And then I'm going to ask others to come if you want prayer for anything else.